Well, if you've been around the Bible for just a little while, or even around Hollywood, you've probably heard of the seven seals of the book of Revelation. What are the seven seals? What's that all about? Well, it's about a scroll that Jesus Christ takes out of the hand of the Father and begins to break the seals. What do the seals represent? What does this all mean? Well, we're going to dive into the seven seals in the book of Revelation today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to the Walk in Truth weekend program. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, you can learn more about Pastor Michael, the online store, and podcast when you visit walkintruth.com. Now, here's part one of Revelation 6, The Seven Seals. So we're looking at the seven seals tonight, and as we just recap the book of Revelation for a second, in chapter one, we saw a revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw him in the garb of the high priest, which tells us about his intercessory role. We saw him in glory. He had eyes like, you know, flames of fire. He had feet like bronze. Uh, There's pictures there of his eyes are all seeing. There's pictures there of judgment. We moved into chapters two and three, and as we did, we saw seven churches addressed, seven churches, historical churches in Asia Minor. We saw five of the seven churches actually get rebuked for something that they weren't doing well, and we saw some of the churches encouraged because they were going through difficulty. They were having to fight false prophets, false teachings. Some of the churches were facing imprisonment and martyrdom. And in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord of the church examines the seven churches and gives them both encouragement and correction, and we saw that. We moved into a scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 where we saw these cool creatures, four of them, and they had eyes you know, all over the place, and they never ceased to sing, remember? Holy, holy, holy. We made a connection there between the scene in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6, whether they're the seraphim or the cherubim, you can go back and forth. We also connected Revelation 4 to Ezekiel chapter 1 and descriptions of the glory of God and the throne room of God. We made some connections to the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai. As we moved into Revelation 5, we saw what took center stage is a scroll. It's a seven-sealed scroll. I showed you, showed you a picture of it last time. It had these seals on it, and a universal search commenced looking in heaven, on earth, and under the earth to find someone who was worthy to open the scroll, to look into it, to break its seals, but no one was found worthy. And remember, John, the apostle John, begins to weep uncontrollably because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. But one of the elders who's there in the heavenly scene in the throne room of God says, John, don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome to break the seals, to look into the scroll, to open the scroll. And then John turned, but what he, when he turned, he didn't see a lion. He saw a lamb as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. I told you the horns represent strength, omnipotence. Seven eyes represent omniscience. And in the very throne room of God, before God the Father, the angels, the 24 elders, the cool creatures there, the four living creatures, cherubim or seraphim, begin to worship Jesus Christ right in front of the Father. I told you that it is undoubted 
that it means that Jesus is God, second person of the Holy Trinity, worshiped right in front of the Father. And then not only was there a, a choir of the 24 elders and the angels and so forth, but at heaven and earth begin to join in. And the last time we were together, there's this incredible anthem of praise that goes up to God. Worthy is the Lamb. And he's purchased uh, with his blood for God, men from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And that's where we've come. The scroll is taken center stage, but more than that, the lamb who's worthy to break the seals. And holy, holy, holy goes up, and worship goes up, and worthy, and redemption can happen. And that's what the title deed, the scroll represents. It's the title deed of the earth. It's whether or not the earth can actually uh, the process of redemption can be finalized, consummated, if you will. And the lamb is worthy. And as we move into chapter six, the lamb will begin to break the seals on this seven-sealed scroll, and he will begin to uh, unfold the plan of God. In Revelation six, if you take a peek at verse 10, one of the questions that's asked in this chapter, Revelation 6:10, is how long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? And so we're going to ask the question tonight, in a world that has persecuted the church, you know, a lot of people want to talk about problems in the Christian church, but very rarely do we hear on mainstream media the amount of persecution that has come at the Christian church. I don't know if any of you can handle looking at these websites, but you may or may not have done so. But persecution.com, The Voice of the Martyrs magazine, Fox's Book of Martyrs, the ACLJ, and other resources like that will tell you about modern persecution of the Christian church. And I have shared with you that the details are hard to take. Brothers and sisters in the Middle East being crucified, children being beheaded, this has been the history of the Christian church for 2,000 years. It seems like the, the seed of the church has been the blood of the martyrs. And of course, in the United States, we, you know, sometimes we've, we've had seasons of persecution as the people of God, but we've experienced nothing like a lot of what's happened to the church over the centuries. And we should thank God that we live in a country that was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic and at least there are people today fighting for religious liberty and trying to keep the Bible where it needs to be and so forth. But our, our own culture, I'm sure you've noticed, is moving away from that. And the, the United States, in many ways, has been ripe for persecution to come our way. And that's not what we pray for, and none of us have a martyr's complex. But it wouldn't surprise me if things go the way that they could go in the near future that we would be facing at least more difficulty. But tonight we are a free people. We open the church doors. We celebrate Jesus Christ. But we have, we have a lot to think about and a lot to consider when we consider judgment. Because this chapter is going to move from persecution and a time of great tribulation for the people of God into the judgment of God. And when, whenever you mention the judgment of God, people get a little squirmy and a little nervous because they start to wonder, well, what, what place does the judgment of God actually have to a modern person's worldview or even consideration in, in daily life? Part of the reason that the wrath of God is going to come is it's going to come on people who have killed God's people. 
God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So the Lord will repay. In fact, Romans 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 says that people are storing up wrath for themselves for the day of wrath because of their stubborn and unrepentant heart. And of course, much of the hatred for God has been directed at his people over the centuries. And God is going to repay. Unless someone repents, God is going to repay. And that is good news, actually, for the church, especially for the persecuted church, especially if you think about Daniel's 70th week and you've done any study of prophecy and you know, you know how the Bible spells out how difficult times will get in that season. Uh, there's going to be great gratitude for the return of Jesus Christ and for the uh, un- outpouring of things that are here in the book of Revelation. Judgment Day, Armageddon, we've all heard these kinds of things. Merrill says, it is the last resort of God's wisdom and holiness. In it, God takes no delight, speaking of his wrath. Yet the necessities of good government, the maintenance of order under rightful authority, and the highest regard for the welfare of the good require this ultimate vindication of righteousness at the expense of the incorrigibly wicked, close quote. There are some people that, frankly, are just not going to repent. And as the book of Revelation unfolds and we get into some of the tougher chapters and we're not there yet, we're going to watch people do everything but repent. They're going to experience the wrath of God. They're going to shake their fist at God and they'll do everything except repent. And so these chapters also remind us of the holiness of God and the importance of repentance. Um, So... We are moving into this chapter called Revelation chapter 6. We're looking at the seven seals. And let me just kind of lay out a big picture chronology. This is my view. I'll let you consider how I see this unfolding. I believe what happens here is that the first five seals of Revelation 6 are not the wrath of God. They are the wrath of Satan and the wrath of man. I believe that we are not going to see the wrath of God come until Revelation 8.1. What we're going to see is seals broken, six seals namely in Revelation 6 that get broken. We're going to see the consequences of those seals that are broken. Ultimately, God is sovereign over what happens. Here's a parallel example. In the book of Job, when Satan is given a certain level of... uh, a leash, if you will, to damage Job's life, to kill children, to cause calamity and danger. God says to him, okay, you can do this to Satan, but you can't touch his life. And so we can see that ultimately, even when Antichrist is up to his no good and all hell is breaking loose, literally and figuratively, God is still on the throne. We'll see his sovereignty. We'll see this in the image of the lamb breaking the seals. Verse 1, Revelation 6 says, And I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. Now this is the lamb had taken the scroll. He was worthy. When the lamb had broken one of the seals, you could just write in your Bible, seal number one. And I heard one of the four living creatures that we've seen around the throne. We saw them in Revelation 4 singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. They said, As this living creature said with a a voice like thunder or a voice of thunder, come. A way that you can render this is be going. So it is the angel, one of the four living creatures that summons one of the four horsemen 
of the apocalypse and they seem to go hand in hand. One of the four living creatures to one of the horsemen says, be going. You've been listening to the Walk in Truth weekend program. Pastor Michael Lance would like to invite your kids to Roar Vacation Bible School at Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona. Each day at VBS, kids travel through rotations with crafts, music, and games, all for the purpose of teaching kids stories from the Bible and immersing them in new adventures. This week-long Vacation Bible School will begin July 8th. Register your little explorer today by visiting livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Make sure you subscribe to the Walk in Truth podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. God is still on the throne. We'll see his sovereignty. We'll see this in the image of the lamb breaking the seals. Verse 1, Revelation 6 says, And I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. Now, this is the lamb had taken the scroll. He was worthy. When the lamb had broken one of the seals, you could just write in your Bible, seal number one. And I heard one of the four living creatures that we've seen around the throne. We saw them in Revelation 4 singing, holy, holy, holy. They said, as this living creature said with a a voice like thunder or a voice of thunder, come. A way that you can render this is be going. So it is the angel, one of the four living creatures that summons one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and they seem to go hand in hand. One of the four living creatures to one of the horsemen says, be going. Remember, the scene is the throne room of God. Ultimately, this is under the supervision of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. All three we've seen in the throne room of God. So judgment day and all that unfolds is under the auspices of God. But the angel, at the direction, of course, ultimately of Almighty God, says to this horseman, be going. Seal number one is broken, and out he goes. One of the four living creatures says with a voice of thunder, come or be going. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, verse two. And he who sat on it, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. If you have an NIV, it says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown. Theologians call this a divine passive. I'll explain in a second. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest, Revelation 6.2. Notice he was given a crown. Theologians call this a divine passive. What they mean by this is that ultimately this first horseman of the apocalypse, as he goes out, is still under the ultimate sovereignty of God. God is allowing him. God gives him a crown. Here the crown that he has is called a Stephanos. That is a victor's crown. It's something that you would win. It's like the wreath of flowers that you would win back in the day at the Olympic Games. Today, if you win an Olympic race, a judge gives you a gold medal. Back in the times when the games were present, back in their early days in Athens and other places when the Apostle Paul was alive, these games were alive and well. If you won a race like that, they wouldn't give you a gold medal. They would give you a wreath of flowers. The judge would place that wreath upon your head for winning the race. This is what the victor's crown represents. It's it's not a diadem. A diadem is a royal crown. A Stephanos is like a victor's crown. It's more like something that you would win as an athlete. So you have the first rider. He's, He's to my left right here. 
He's got a bow in his hand. That's his implement. Each rider will have, will have a color of the horse, will have an implement that they use. And we'll, when we see the final rider, we'll see he needs no implement. We'll talk about that in a second. But he, what he has is a bow. Now, when you think of a bow, what do you think of? Well, back in, in the ancient days, if you watch any of the movies back from the uh, military uh, combat of Rome or times like that, you can see that the main weapon that they had was a bow and arrow or a sword. They would often dip the bow and arrow in a substance where they could cause fire to be on it, and then they would shoot the bow and it would splatter uh, stuff everywhere. So this is kind of the, the ancient um, symbols of warfare. He's on a white horse. When you think of a white horse, what do you think of? Think of a good guy, don't you? I think of Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. Can I get a witness? Long flowing hair, down the mountain he comes to save the day while the orcs are going. You gotta be a fan of that movie, aren't you? If you're not, please go see the series. You just gotta. Anyway, let me say this. The horses are symbolic. Many years ago, I was having a discussion with a professor at a local Christian college, and I said to him, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. I was a young Christian, and there's the, the armies of heaven are gonna follow him. And he said, I just have one question for you, Michael. Where are they gonna park all those horses? It's a deep question. Just think about it for a second. Well, the horses are part of the symbolism of the book of Revelation. They represent what's going to be happening in the world. Now, there are two major views on this rider, this horse and rider. One major view, and you can see this in some ancient commentaries by Irenaeus, for example, and even a modern commentator like Henry Morris, which I have great respect for him would say that the first horse and rider is Jesus Christ. He's on a white horse. The first seal has been broken. And out he goes, bent on conquest. After all, isn't this what the book of Revelation is all about? Jesus Christ coming back to take the earth and the world and restore order. And we would certainly, I think, all agree. But there are some significant differences between chapter 6 and chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus does return on a white horse. I would say to you, there's a little bit of problem just in thinking about the, the dynamics of the passage because the lamb is breaking the seals. Then is he riding out on the white horse again? Is he doing both simultaneously? There's some problems with the imagery, although we could probably get around that because we're still dealing with symbolism. So I'm not going to just push that to the side. But in 6.2, you have, uh, he's wearing the Stephanos, the victor's wreath. In 1911, which is the parallel passage, we won't go there for this moment, he's wearing a diadem. In fact, it says he's wearing many diadems or many crowns. You could look at uh, Revelation 19.11 and 12. Here he has a bow. There, in Revelation 19, he has a sharp sword that's coming out of his mouth. So there's other things that I could draw to your attention um, things that the difference between uh, a series of devastating calamities that follow this first rider, conquest, war, famine, and death. And then in chapter 19, uh, what's happening is this is the final wrath of God with the riding out of Jesus Christ on the white horse. 
A final and fatal objection, says one one commentator, is the repeated use of there was given, which normally in Revelation refers to the divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. In other words, it says it was a crown was given to him. Jesus has many crowns, but he is God. So everybody with me? So so what's the conclusion you might ask, Pastor Michael? Who is this first horse and rider? Open for some debate, but I think a large majority of scholars we would all respect would say the first horse and rider is the Antichrist. He is what you would call a messianic pretender. Antichrist means in the place of Christ or against Christ. If you're anti something, you're against it, right? So when you think of Antichrist, he tries to act in the place of Christ or he is against Christ. But notice he rides on a white horse, which makes him look like what? A good guy. We do know when we look at Daniel 9, 24 through 27, just write it down for your notes. You've all probably heard this before. We've heard stuff about the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel for a period of one week, one week of sevens or seven years. We've heard about the midpoint or the three and a half years. We'll talk more about this as we get into these chapters, but... This Antichrist rides out, and what's his bent? His bent is military conquest. When you read things about the Antichrist in other passages, in 2 Thessalonians, in the book of Daniel, you can see that military conquest is part of what he does. He's ruling with an iron fist. Uh, But he looks like a good guy, at least at first. There seems to be, you know, scholars like to talk about a peace treaty that he signs with Israel, and maybe even he has some role in helping with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and all of these kinds of things. As uh, Matthew records the Olivet Discourse, and this is the other place I asked you to be in, we're just gonna flip back and forth to compare Revelation 6 with Matthew 24. I want you to see what Jesus had to say about these times, and we're gonna draw a comparison between the seals of Revelation 6 and the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. So Matthew 24, And Jesus is answering the question that's uh, given to him in verse 3. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, 3, Jesus was. This is why this is called the Olivet Discourse. The disciples came to him privately. I think another uh, text tells us that it was Peter, James, and John. And they said, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, this is the big question, isn't it? When will these things be? When? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, Revelation chapter 6 actually gives us the sign, the cosmic sign of Jesus' coming. And it's very clear when we put the scriptures together, cross-referencing and taking scripture with scripture, what that sign is. But you're going to have to tune in on Monday to find out about the sign of Jesus' coming. So join us then. Well, hey, I'm Pastor Michael Lance. And friend, I'd like to remind you that Walk in Truth is now in podcast form. Yes, you can listen whenever you want on your smartphone or your tablet. Man, it's becoming more and more. It's so cool to have access to these messages through this great technology. Now, you can go back and even listen to our first teaching in Revelation when you search for Walk in Truth on your favorite podcast app like iPodcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and many, many more. 
Now, if the book of Revelation is bringing up some questions in your mind about current events or how does Revelation apply to today's landscape, or maybe just have a Bible question you'd like to hear dealt with, we'd love to deal with that even on the air. So submit your questions that you may have at answers at walkintruth.com. Email them to answers at walkintruth.com. Now, I want to remind you, friend, that you're always invited to come out to Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona, where I serve as senior pastor. This morning, I'm going to be teaching on the subject of love from 1 Corinthians 13. How do we know what love is? Is love a feeling? Is it a decision? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is going to tell us what love looks like, what love does. And you know, if we could just follow 1 Corinthians 13, it would solve pretty much all of our problems. And that's what we're commanded to do. We need to learn what it says. What does the Bible say about love and how can we follow that? How can we live that out? Well, I'm sure you'd like to know more. I'd like to know more. I'm looking forward to studying this a little bit more and sharing it with you when you come to one of the services today at 9 or 11.15 a.m. The address is 1009 Arsenal Way in Corona, That's 1009 Arsenal Way in the city of Corona, and you are cordially invited. All the information you need can be found when you go to the App Store and download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app, or you can find out the information you need at our website, walkintruth.com. Just click on that visit tab. I would love to meet you, look forward to meeting you, so come on out and join us in fellowship and worship and getting into the Word of God. Now, please make sure that you tune in on Monday to learn more about the seven seals in the book of Revelation. Looking forward to diving in more with you on Monday. Have a fabulous, blessed weekend. We'll talk to you then. God bless you. Remember, to learn more about Pastor Michael, the online store, podcast, or to donate, visit walkintruth.com. And thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.